You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Erin Schwartz. Erin, uh, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm, yeah, I'm Erin Schwartz. Um, I am a writer and um, I've written for The Nation, which I think is what we're talking about today. Um, two pieces about, one about Fleabag, the TV show, and the other one about The Sopranos. Right. So I saw your Fleabag piece first and thought it was interesting. And I had wanted to talk about Fleabag on this platform because I like the show a lot and those interesting things. And then I saw you also wrote about Sopranos. In particular, the angle you wrote about was uh, Sopranos in New Jersey. Um, and because you grew up in New Jersey and I also grew up in New Jersey and maybe we only grew up about 20 miles from each other. Um, but, uh, it's amazing. It's like, it's like a garbage state. Um, but it's like a garbage state in some of the most like interesting, like elaborate ways in the world. And like, no one gives it enough credit. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll talk all about New Jersey and whether it deserves, <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, it deserves to be known as the armpit of America or not. Um, but first Fleabag. Okay. So, so. Uh, how would you describe this show for someone who hasn't even heard of it? Although it's been talked about so much in the past six months or so that I feel like most people have heard of it by now, but in case you haven't, how would you describe it? Yeah, when I'm working on a piece, I'll turn on like a Google news alert for in case something like an interview comes up and, and there's more information about it. And I just like turn the flea bag one off because everyone was just like coming up with like listicles about flea bag, like where to buy the flea bag jumpsuit. And it was like right. almost too much information about it. Um, this is a good question, though, because I did just convince my dad to watch Fleabag, um, and I did have to kind of sell it to him. So it's a really funny, dark story told entirely from the perspective of its main character, who doesn't have a name. Her name is Fleabag in the credits, and it came out of a one-woman show um, created by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, in 2013. And you're just like going with her throughout her life. Um, it's really, there are a lot of moments that are like really hilarious and really depressing, but you watch her. She's, she's like pretty much adrift in all of her central relationships. Like her relationship with her family is, is pretty non-existent. Her best friend has just died. Um, and she is just like trying to keep herself together when all of these like rough things have happened to her. Right, and so it's a British show. Um, oh, and- the, the first, the first series, as I say over there, came out a couple of years ago, and then the second one came out this year. And it seems like there are only so there are only uh, six episodes per series, like you know, in the original Office or something. And um, it seems like the the they ended on a stopping point in the second at the end of the second series, which you think, okay, this is probably it. Um, and it's like a, a complete work. Yeah, and she said like a bunch of times that she's not going to do a third. So right. maybe there'll be a then, maybe there'll be a Christmas special as they do sometimes <laughs> over there. Um, nice. And the like, other thing is, you can I think you can only watch it on Amazon Prime in America unless you have some like illegal means of obtaining things. So, like I think it, it aired on BBC or something over there, but yeah. but Amazon Prime it's, has um, has it here. Yeah, Amazon Prime is how I've been watching it. There are also absolutely illegal ways to watch any TV show. Right. Um, okay, and so and Phoebe Waller Bridge um, also is the creator or writer of um, oh god, I just went out of my head. The show with Sandra O. Oh. Killing Eve. Killing Eve. Um, yeah, yeah. It's based on a book, but she's the writer for the first season of Killing Eve, which is also an incredible show. 
Right. And I think she, so she created Fleabag, stars in it. I think she wrote every episode. Did she, did she also direct every episode? I think so. Okay, so this is like, an, think... it's like an auteur production, basically, around yeah. uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And she she's like, yeah, so she's the core of the show. She's basically in every scene because either... Well, she's in literally every scene. Okay, yeah, that would make sense because we're always experiencing reality through her perspective, and we see um, we can see flashbacks uh, that she's thinking about. And the other, this is you know, this is not like a unique uh, narrative trick. Is that she breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the camera and the viewer? And this is established very early on that she does this. No one else can hear her uh, asterisk. By that, <laughs> no one else uh, asterisk can hear her. And she, so she creates this like uh, sense of intimacy with the viewer. Of we're getting to see, you know, her running commentary, making fun of the awful people she's surrounded by, what she really thinks is going to happen. As you know, sometimes she predicts something that's going to happen and then the opposite happens, so she's not always right. Um, yeah. And, you know, she's a very flawed character in numerous ways and how she lives her life and how she treated her friends and so forth. But we, we still, like, feel this connection with her, I think, it was mostly due to Phoebe Waller-Bridge being, like, this, uh, you know, charismatic, kind of captivating actor on mm-hmm. screen, but also the fact that she's talking directly to us. Um, okay, so, and you, when you, the angle you took a little bit on this was was thinking about the narrative devices and how in some ways this is, even though the, the this is not like a, sh- a show about the internet, um, hmm. the ways Very- that, yeah, the, 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 you, don't, you don't really see them using computers at all, though. <laughs> There's the part where she, um... Sexting scene. Right, there's a part where she um, is watching Obama give a speech and <laughs> masturbates to it in a, a very funny scene So you're watching on her computer. Um, but, but yeah, but kind of like direct, I mean, both of us right now are, are directly addressing uh, it, the, the it, camera. On a webcam. Right, so and this is like a, a new paradigm. Okay, so I've talked for a while. Why don't you <laughs> say whatever you want in response to that? I think it like, as you mentioned, it is not the first time someone in film or TV has like broken the fourth wall and duress, uh, address the viewer directly. But I think there's something unique and like it feels very contemporary about the fact that she is explicitly trying to charm you. Like she kind of like wins you over to her side and that she also is sometimes wrong. So she's not an omniscient narrator. She's not, you know, um, always right, and she doesn't con- necessarily like kind of control the flow of information in the narrative. Like sometimes someone else, another character will say something, and she hasn't really told like us, the viewer, about it yet, and she kind of doesn't want to let it in, but she has to. So she's not, even though she's the one who's like telling us about stuff, she doesn't have control over reality. Like it's not her reality. It's a reality narrated by her. And also the fact that um, other characters sometimes differ from what she expects of them. And then, as you alluded to with the asterisk, um, in the second season, the priest starts noticing when she's, like, break, she's, like, talking to the audience. Like, he can't hear her. He doesn't know what she's saying. But, like, he notices that something's different. Like, he, the way he, like, describes it, he's like, you went somewhere else. And then she kind of stops, like, it causes, like, a bit of a rift in their relationship that she no longer has this kind of place. She can, I don't know, I, I think about it like an outlet. Like, she is, like, the series starts, the first season starts when she has, like, lost her best friend. She, she could, like, share all of these, like, kind of mordant 
cynical observations with, and she just doesn't have anyone who she can talk to. So she's like talking to us. Um, and then once she starts getting kind of like, once that's perceived, she has to kind of adjust. And like in the second moment where the priest notices that she's like talking with someone else, um, he's asking her all these questions about her mother's death and her relationship with her stepmother who's played by Olivia Coleman. And also is like, that is another thing I'm upset. I didn't have space to write about because I feel like that's just one of the most brilliant comedic performances, just how awful the stepmother is. Like she's just such a horrible person, but in such a subtle way. Um, yeah. And so he's asking her all of these questions. She doesn't really want to answer. She starts looking at the camera and you get this like quick shot of boo. Who's her, her friend who's died. And she's just sitting there in the corner, like shaking her head, like, no, I don't want you to talk about this. And it's like this moment where it's not just Fleabag making the decision about what she's going to share and not share. It's like the hot priest asking her for some information, Boo, on the other hand, in her memory, telling her not to give that information, and she kind of has to decide what to do. And I feel like it gets into this thing about um, sort of contemporary new media culture, the kind of visual motifs of, like, quick editing cuts, which the show uses a lot, these kind of like funny one-liners to the camera, self-deprecation, but also this kind of like larger, like narrative ethics question over like who has the power to tell a story? What does it mean to tell a story when it involves someone else's life? And do people kind of get the opportunity to dissent from a narrative that you're presenting? Mm-hmm. And in Fleabag, you see a lot of people dissenting from the narrative. Or not a lot, but it happens. And, yeah, it reminds me of, like, I don't know, when, like, certain things kind of have this, like, second life on the Internet and they are taken to, like, picked apart and taken to mean something else. Where, like, you, you know, express one version of a certain event and someone else is able to express a different version. Mm-hmm. And both of those things are kind of treated as units of media rather than like here is the author and then this thing is separate. Yeah. So um I want to talk about the ensemble and the other actors because I agree they're like pretty much uniformly great across the bo- across the board. Um let's let's stick with this uh let's stick with the kind of the narrative stuff. I mean so let's let's say here um if you haven't been convinced to watch a show and you and um, we really haven't spoiled anything really about the show, but I think from now on there will be some spoilers about kind of twists that happen. Um, so the big twist spoiler ending of the first season is you find out that um, the reason Boo ran into traffic was that she caught uh, her best friend Fleabag making out with her boyfriend. And, yeah. uh, and then she wanted to, uh, Fleabag tells us that she wanted to just run out and get hit by a, a biker. So someone on a, on a, um, you know, a bicycle and to get sympathy that way. But she did that. She was hit by the, someone on the bicycle, but caromed into the street and was hit by a truck and died. Um, and two other people died. Like that's something that gets mentioned in the first episode and sometimes left out. But I like, forgot about that. Yeah. Just one life on her conscience. She has like, like three, she has these like bikers who also got hit by the car because Boo stepped out into traffic. So it's like a whole, you know, it, it is like a, a horrifying like series of events that she sort of right set off. Yeah. So 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 she feels, and perhaps accurately, <laughs> in some senses, is responsible for her best friend's suicide. 
and that guilt is weighing on her. And um, I actually, I think when I was watching the second season, I wondered whether the uh, person or entity that uh, Fleabag is talking to isn't us in the camera, but it's Boo, or some sense of Boo from another world, um, or just her guilty memory of Boo, and this is the one, this is the one she's confiding in, because she, she treats, you know, she treats the camera like a confidant, and will whisper little things like, you know, he fucked me in the ass or something, you know, t- just to, um, about like, you know, a guy she sees on the street. Um, and so it is like a, like a friend, like a friend relationship that she establishes. And then it's less so in the second season, but the first one, she's really like haunted by, uh, what happened with Boo. And I don't know if, th- if this, uh, you know, I think I would need to rewatch with this theory in mind <laughs> to see if it actually does make sense or if it, this part to where it wouldn't make sense. But it seems like one possible interpretation of, the rules of, of this world is that she's communing with the other side, or I always think she's like talking. The, the voice in her head is like Boo's voice because because that was her best friend. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought about that. Um, it definitely fills the role of a like close friend who you can like say anything to with like no filter, and you can be kind of like crass and like funny. I feel like, yeah, I guess that one scene in the cafe where Boo, where she is, like, kind of deciding what to say to the hot priest and her indecision is kind of, like, embodied in a shot of Boo might support that. Um, I've always kind of thought of it, like, almost, almost like she's, like, a, I don't know, like not a YouTuber, but someone who is like almost make like she's like making a show. Cause I feel like if she is communing with Boo, there would be more like she spends so much time hiding her like actual emotions from like everyone, including the people in her life, but also from the audience. Like she mostly tells us like funny stuff. And occasionally, like, is sad, but most of it, she's just trying to be, like, really, like, strong and funny and, and ignore all of the things that are, um, causing her to feel a howling sense of existential dread, or she puts it in some way in the, in the second season. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess if it were Boo, I think she would be more at ease. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I mean, so there's a moment, there's a moment in the second season. Okay. So further spoilers, she actually does hook up with the hot priest. And there's a moment that I, when it, I was like, you know, this is like the best, you know, m- like TV twist I'd seen in years when it happened, which is when they're in bed together and, and then Fleabag reaches out, grabs the camera and pushes it and pushes it down. And I was just like, what the fuck just happened? Even though this, this is just like, you know, meta, like playing around, I was still, you know, it was like, something at a lost, just like the twist level. So, Cause it, it, it like reconfigures what, you know, what is happening here. So like, yeah, there's somehow they're, they're showing us that there is some kind of like physical reality to this such that she can reach out, grab the camera. Like obviously there's not within this world, there's not a camera there. There's no camera crew documenting all this stuff, but then, and, and, yeah, and then pushes it down. Like, you know, a like, like something that would happen on a reality TV show. Yeah. Which is funny because there are also other things presumably that are off limits. Like this isn't like big brother. We don't have like 24 seven footage of Fleabag's life that we can watch if we want it. Like she's already making edits. She's already like, here's what's in the scope of the story I'm telling you. 
you have no idea what's not. And in the moment she like draws our attention to the fact that she's like, I'm cutting <laughs> like this is outside. Yeah. And I feel like her and the, her relationship with the hot priest is kind of like the first domino that leads her to eventually like stopping, like stopping, you know, broadcasting. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's a little, and this is also another large spoiler. Oh, sorry. I think I just got, it was just like laggy briefly. Yeah. Why don't you just repeat what you just said? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I feel like when she eventually in the, in the, at the end of the second season, she like basically like stops broadcasting. Like she just sort of turns and walks away from the camera and like shakes her head, basically kind of saying like, don't follow me. And that has to do with the end of her relationship with the priest. And so like that relationship is kind of one of the things that like brings her to the point of being like, I don't want to have this audience anymore. I don't want to be sort of narrating my life in this way anymore. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, someone needs to like, like an academic in film theory needs to like write like the ultimate article, like trying to see if there's a coherent way to explain all the stuff that happens in the like meta textual aspect of this show. Um, so yeah, yeah, so at, at the end when she, she stops the camera from following her and gives a little like kind of sad wave goodbye and walks off, we think, okay, she, she somehow like psychologically resolved whatever pain or like fissure caused her to need this thing of a talking to a camera following her around and, and telling her story and so she's going off so we're kind of like happy we're we're sad that to wait to see say goodbye to this you know hilarious character but we're happy that she um you know has like kind of worked out her problems and feels like she doesn't need the crutch of sarcastically uh you know turning to the camera all the time it reminds you know when we we're discussing it just now it reminded me of something that i've only actually seen the the famous part which is um the hills uh the the end <gasps> of the hills uh or i I really didn't watch the show when it was on. It was like a mid-aughts quasi-reality yeah. show. But like, so it was it was a reality show about beautiful people in Southern California and all the shots seemed framed perfectly and it seemed kind of fakey, but people were like, oh, okay, maybe they're recreating conversations or something. Um, and then the final shot of, this, of the show was like two people, two of the main characters talking and then like it zoomed back and you, and you saw they were like on a set, like a Hollywood set. And... And everyone who's in like, you know, the people with the ladders and the lights and stuff are revealed as as being there. And that was like a big mindfuck in 2007 or whatever for everyone who was watching. I missed that. But that's, yeah, like that feels like part of the same like milieu as like. Yeah. yeah. Like what has been happening here all, all along? It makes you question, you know, question everything. Um yeah, yeah but- it also made me think about, like, early, like, net art. Um, like, I forget the name of the artist, but there was an artist who had this, like, project where she constantly broadcast herself on a webcam, and this was, like, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So, like, that was another thing where it's, like, you think you're getting this, like, access to this person, but, like, are you? There was this pair of artists who always, who, like, broadcast their location at all times. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you kind of see that traced through to, like, the contemporary net where your location is traced not because you're, like, doing it for fun, but because, like, someone's, you know, there's, like, a profit motive. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it feels like that thing where you're, like, okay, um, who is building this reality? And if I'm entertained, does it matter if it's fake or if there are certain emissions? Um, yeah. yeah, and, I mean, the show is, um, you know, never presented as 
anything but fiction, but um, it, yeah. it is using these kind of tropes from the reality TV world. Um, oh. and, uh, and it's like, or, or it's also with, like, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, even within the fictional world, there are, you're like, it's fiction, but the way it functions, the story, yeah, the way it functions within that frame is like, yeah, very much like a reality show or like a, like a YouTuber, like a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, or like the, uh, you know, the, um, the American version of The Office, where Jim would always be looking at the camera making a face, is kind of, it could be kind of seen as a predecessor to, uh, to what she does by looking at the camera and like telling us what's actually happening. Okay, so, so this, so the show started as a one woman show, and she's, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge has gotten most of the press, but the, the supporting cast is really, really good, really funny. Uh, Olivia Coleman, I, I didn't like know who she was before watching the first season of this, but I guess she had a, you know, a long lasting British TV comedy career and then she blew up because she was the queen and the favorite. And, (laughs) right, a very, another very like combining darkness and, and comedy, uh, kind of thing. Um, and violence, because there's a, there is some violence in Fleabag with, especially Fleabag like punches, uh, a couple people and, uh, (laughs) Yeah, so, but anyway, so, so she's great as the stepmother, this kind of smarmy, um, woman who is always undercutting, uh, Fleabag and, you know, treating her like the hired help and stuff. But then the, um, I think the sister does. Cool. She's like, she's like, so, she seems very, um, I mean, Olivia Coleman has like a very, like, sweet, um, beautiful face, has like a very calm energy, and she just, like, she like hones in on that, like, quality to the point of like that's almost like psychotic where she's like so seems so gentle and she's so cruel to everyone like there's this amazing scene where she's painting a portrait of Fleabag and her sister Claire for um a gift for her or no I think a gift to their father because they're getting married and she's having them sit for the portrait and she just tells Fleabag to like turn a little bit and then she just keeps telling her to turn until she's facing away from her (laughs) and it's like clear that like she's not actually going to be like it's the back of her head in the portrait right and it's just so mean but it's so funny and then you you see in the in the last episode when they have the when they have the wedding, you see the um, you see the portrait there, and you see that it's just the back of her head and the front of the sister's head. Um, so this have such a lovely thick neck, <laughs> right? So yeah, I mean, she's like she's like the evil stepmother character, um, but you know, seems very lovely on the surface, but then like everything she says is subtly like undercutting and like psychologically messing with the other the other characters. Um, so I like the sister a lot too. Um, I wasn't yeah. familiar with that actress. I guess she's the only British actress, but she, um, is kind of the, she's like the opposite of Fleabaggers, at least presented that way at first. Um, she's married. She has a stepson. She has like a high powered career. Although there's this funny part where no one in the family knows what her job is and they, they think she's a lawyer. She's not a lawyer or something like that. Or she. Yeah. And that's another one of the times when Fleabag is wrong. Like everyone at the dinner table is like, no, you're a lawyer. <laughs> Um, Fleabag looks at the camera and goes, she's a lawyer. And then, like, no, I'm not. I went to business school. I'm, like, in finance. And they're like, no, you're a lawyer. But she, like, Fleabag is also wrong about it, and she tells us the wrong thing. Um, yeah, but she's amazing. And I feel like that is actually, like, I feel like um, the love story, like, obviously her affair with the Roman Catholic priest is, like, not going to end well. 
But the real love story of the second season is her and Claire and her and Claire, like repairing their relationship. And by the end, like there's this like throwaway comment that Claire makes at the the wedding of the stepmother and their father. And, and she like Fleabag's urging her to go after this guy who she loves. And, and she's like, I would never like, she's like the only one I'd run through an airport for is you. And like, if you go back to the first episode of the first season, they're like not close at all. Like there, there's no way they would either one of them would run through an airport or the other. And it just kind of like organically happens or not organically, but over the course of the series, they learn how to like take care of each other. And it's so nice. And I kind of feel like I love the hot priest storyline. It's a good storyline. But part of me is like, it's not a sad ending because obviously it would be not a good relationship if she just like continued to sleep with a priest, but she kind of got her sister back and it made me really happy because I love my sister so much. And I think sister stories are like, we don't have enough of them and it made me so happy. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I thought the um the their relationship was like kind of the hidden yeah, the hidden through line of, of the show, and then you realize that at the end that that's what like really matters, and it seems like a very uh like true and human relationship and that they're often at odds and and Claire is very kind of like I don't know, like brusque and you know, she'll say she'll say something that she knows is mean and that kind of thing. But um yeah, they kind of like do support each other and uh, Fleabag helps Claire get out from under her awful husband, who is played by Brett Gelman, who is just <laughs> this amazing actor who has, in the past couple of years, has shown up like three or four times in, in various uh, streaming series, playing just like the dirtbag guy who is just so good at being an asshole. And so he's also in. Well, he he's he has a more of a heroic uh, character of line in Stranger Things. Um, uh-huh. But and he, but then he's also in um, Love, the Netflix show Love, playing the boss of the female lead, um, Jillian Jacobs, I think, and and he's just a total asshole. And that and he there's something. I mean, he you know he kind of looks absurd. He has this huge beard and he's bald. He's really tall and thin, and he's always like so outraged at the way he's being like mistreated by everyone when really he's the one who is who has you know who is the true asshole has mistreated everyone else, and he's so good at playing this this one type um and maybe i don't i think actually i think he was on children's hospital that was maybe the first time i saw him but i, I might i might be wrong about that uh, but i think he's, he's like, like comedy yeah he comes from that that like weird improv um background but yeah so he is as the as claire's uh husband he's he's very good and then also good even though he's he only has a couple lines is whoever plays the stepson who's who has a um <laughs> like a strange fascination with Claire that doesn't seem like sexual, just seems like he wants a mother figure or something. And he's very concerned about her. And they say the only thing a little sexual, like he tries to get in the back with her, but it is more like calling it sexual would almost not do the depth of the obsession justice. Right. So he, so he likes Claire, the stepmother much more than he likes his asshole father. And the thing he he always says is, is where's Claire? Yeah. Yeah, and, like, in in the, I think, maybe second-to-last episode, he, like, comes up to Claire, and he's like, you have to leave him. <laughs> and, like, and yeah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, so they found, like, some, like, 14- or 16-year-old guy who's very 
uh, tall and thin to, to play this small role as playing a weirdo, basically. And, um, and he does a good job. And then I guess the, the father is the last character. I feel like that guy must be a, like, well-known English actor, even though I, I didn't especially re- recognize him. But he also does a good job as this ineffectual, um, guy who, like, gets his foot, his foot stuck in the floor of the attic right before his own wedding and can't, like, like, everyone, everyone kind of likes him, but doesn't understand why he is with the, uh, Olivia Coleman character. Um, and he's, yeah, he seems like very gentle and, uh, I don't know, you, you, you yeah. wonder, sorry, say that again? Like, he can't finish a sentence. He ends every sentence. He's like, you are my daughters. So that's <laughs> right. Well, that's it. And like, and he just like goes, yeah, he, you get the sense that like, if he has anything to say or to express, it's like buried so deep that it's just not going to come out. It's going to maybe come out in these like partial ways, but um, yeah. Right. And then there's, I mean, there's an absent character who is the mother who is, had has already passed away um, at, you know, when the show starts and we see her funeral and the things around her funeral in this season, but we never, um, we never find out that much about her. Maybe it's, it's, yeah, because you're kind of wondering, like, how did this bumbling, you know, little, like, kindly British man produce these two, like, singular daughters? Um, well, it must have been, you know, the mother must have been quite a character. But, that, but yeah, but she's never, you know, you never even see, you, you, there's this thing with the um, the little bronze uh, torso, this little, like, sculpture. Um, <laughs> you, you see her, I guess. Right, so you see that part of her, you see a, na- a naked, um, like, torso sculpture of her that the stepmother did, but you, we never, like, see her see the mother's face as far as I know. Yeah, 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 and it gets passed around between all of the characters. It gets, like, stolen by both daughters at different points in the show. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Yeah, and, and then when um, they use it as the award for, like, the women's excellence of business or whatever, that, that, uh, that episode is very funny as well. Um, and Kristen Scott Thomas, is that her name? Kristen Scott Thomas? Um, yeah. She has a cameo in that episode. Um Okay, so I guess the last thing to talk about, which we have to talk about, and you did not mention in your piece, is the hot priest and the obsession that the hot priest created among a number of women I follow on Twitter, at least, and other maybe uh, just regular women across the country who saw something in this guy. um, What is the the actor's name? Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott. I only knew him because he was Moriarty or still is maybe Moriarty in the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock series, but I wasn't familiar with him otherwise. And when, you know, when that series came out, I don't think anyone was like, Oh, hot Moriarty. Um, you know, oh, yeah. well, it's almost entirely in his like affect. Okay. So the, he's, he's obviously a very good actor. Um, yeah. He's like violently repressed and you're just watching like his face is so, I feel like, um, Fleabag excels at casting people who like look like they're suppressing some anguish or strain like most of the time. Like even Claire, like she always looks like tense. Like mm-hmm. she just kind of um, looks like she can't relax. And like, yeah, it feels like you watch him and he's like, so um, yeah, he's just like, repressing all of his desire for Fleabag and you can just like see the effort of it on his face and you're kind of like oh oh no um yeah I 
think the hot priest is for sure hot. I think it is a well executed, um, romantic, a plot in a TV series. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, I think the hot priest phenomenon totally makes sense to me. Um, I, I kind of don't think it's the most interesting thing about the show though. If anything, I think it shows how good Phoebe Waller bridge is at like giving like keeping her viewers like interested by giving us these like very like singular kinds of like twists on familiar plot um, devices. Like mm-hmm. of course Fleabag at some point was going to have like a multi episode flirtation relationship with someone, but the fact that it's like a priest and he keeps giving her like Bibles and stuff is like <laughs> quite inventive and very fun. And I also like, um, you know, when you're writing about a show, you end up watching every episode a zillion times, but it was like very fun to rewatch the hot priest scenes. Cause you're like, Oh, so good. They did such a good job. Um, okay. So you, you fell under the sway of the hot priest, like many other, or many others who voiced their, <laughs> voiced their opinion online. I kind of feel like one thing I will say about the hot priest is I think, he initiates every romantic, like every contact. Like he, there's a scene where he like, she's in a confessional and he like kisses her and then they like a painting falls down. And, right. and he, he, like, he tells her to kneel. Um, he just like, her to kneel. Was, like, all, was like the moment, the moment um, most commented upon that I saw um, in terms of like, you know, hot, hot priest hotness. Um, what was that moment? But she, like, I think, the, the flea bag you meet in the first season has like zero impulse control and is very like sexually frank to the point of sometimes like, um, being a, perhaps inconsiderate to other people. Um, for example, the guy with the buck teeth, um, like her, you know, sexual candor, I think kind of like hurts his feelings. Like he's terrible, but like at one point they're in a bar and she's like, she's like, because he doesn't want to immediately leave to like sleep together. She gets like really mad at him and then steals some money from his wallet. But (laughs) with the hot priest, she doesn't initiate any of it. Like they make out, then they sleep together. He initiates both things. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like perhaps no one gives the hot priest enough shit for creating this this like problem that has to be solved in the end by either like leaving the church or leaving flu bag. Yeah. Like he got it there. So I think it's not it's not like poor impulse control flea bag who produced that situation. It's actually poor impulse control hot priest. Yeah, I mean he's it, hot priest. He, yeah, he's not per- presented as even before he has sex uh, with one of his parishioners or the daughter of one of his parishioners, he's not presented as like the best guy, you know, he's like drinking these little gin and tonic cans and, um, you know, yeah, he, I don't know. He's, he's not, he's not your standard priest. I was thinking just like, you know, there's in the world of romantic comedies, but like going back to, you know, the like 18th or 19th century novel. And there was an essay that Jeffrey Eugenides wrote about this about 10 years ago in Slate, which we'll link to below. Uh, he wrote about how the, the traditional um, plot of 
a, you know, a Jane Austen novel or something was, you know, the woman and the man are, are different social classes. And so there, there's the big barrier of, to them getting together and then they reconcile it somehow. And then this evolves into being like, they're from different countries or different races or ethnicities or something, but then uh, different religions perhaps. But then, you know, at, <laughs> the point now where we don't think it's a scandal if, you know, someone who is really wealthy and someone who's just a little bit wealthy gets married, um, like there needs to be some other impediment to what, <laughs> what is keeping people apart um, and, and keep you guys entertained. So having the, the pre, you know, having the man be a priest is perhaps <laughs> one of the uh, last remaining impediments you can, you can put up there. Sorry, I have a cat. <laughs> oh, that's okay. If a cat makes a cameo appearance, that's, that's all to the better. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, so screen, um, finding a nice sunbeam to lion. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Like social progress is bad for um, setups for rom-coms. Right. That, like, yeah, most of what happens in a Jane Austen novel, like, I don't know. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, my mom read me and my sister Pride and Prejudice, and it, it got to the point where, like, Lydia and Wickham eloped together, and my mom like, was, like, careful to kind of, like, like contextualize it, and she's like, this was something that was seen as, um, like, not socially acceptable at the time, but today it's like very normal for people to live together before they get married. But at the time people weren't willing. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, but you wouldn't have, yeah, you wouldn't have like a um, relationship out of wedlock plot point. You wouldn't have the interclass plot point. So yeah, I think, I think uh, a relationship is a good way to keep that um, obstacle to, yeah, to a relationship there. Yeah, and and the I think the other point that Eugenides made in this essay was, um, you know, divorce was not an option for Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina, and if they could just get divorced, uh, but still have like support, uh, you know, financial support from the husband, then like those stories would end differently. Um, okay, so yeah. so the. the um, oh, I'm reading Portrait of a Lady by Henry James right now, and and that's another one where you're like, oh no, like. If it were, like, just sign a prenup, like, <laughs> it's okay. Like, you don't have to stay with this horrible guy. But you, you can't sign a prenup in 19th century Italy. <laughs> okay, so so the, the piece you wrote, The Dirtbag Magnetism of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, we'll link to it uh, in The Nation. Is there anything else you want to say about Fleabag before we move on to our, to our second topic? Um, it was just really hard not to make the piece a list of my favorite things about Fleabag, but then it would be 10,000 words long and not interesting. <laughs> um, okay. So if somehow you've listened to all this and you haven't watched Fleabag, um, <laughs> go watch it because it'll still be very funny. Uh, I guess we spoiled a couple of the twists, but it'll still be very funny and entertaining. Um, okay. So the other piece I want to talk to you about um, also in the nation, uh, the title is the Sopranos is the id of New Jersey. Um, have the Garden State surreal political culture made its most famous television show? So, you and I are both um, children of <laughs> the Garden State, and I, I grew up. So, The Sopranos is set in uh, Essex County. Uh, Tony lives in West Caldwell. Is that right? Yeah, he which, lives in West Caldwell, which is at the far far western part of Essex County. I grew up in South Orange, which is on the eastern part, bordering Newark. You know, so Newark is one of the key points of 
the series as well. And then you grew up in a neighboring county, um, and we won't hold that against you. We'll still let you talk about <laughs> Essex County and The Sopranos. So why did okay? So it's the 20th anniversary of that. That's that, that's the occasion for this piece of the premiere of the show. And yeah. I think at this point, everyone like has had enough time to decide whether or not to watch The Sopranos. So we'll just talk about it freely. Um, but okay, so why did you? Why was New Jersey like and New Jersey politics the angle you wanted to take on this? Um, well, I'm growing up in New Jersey, you gain a kind of Somali's appreciation for like stories about people behaving badly, but hilariously in politics. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, there is a ton of New Jersey centric writing about the Sopranos. There's like Soprano Sue, the, who has this block of like all of the locations in New Jersey that were used in the Sopranos. Like there are a lot of, you know, pieces in, like, every time someone has a bit part on The Sopranos from, like, northern New Jersey, they get, like, an interview with the Star-Ledger. Yeah, the Star-Ledger used to have, like, a weekly recap thing. And yeah. then I, in the final season, I feel like it was possibly on the front page or something, or at least the finale, like, I'm sure they wrote, they had on the front page. Yeah, It's like, here's our show. We love our show. But I felt like there was a bit of a disjuncture between the, like, New Jersey-centric writing about The Sopranos and the kind of critical writing about The Sopranos. Like, I, one of the pieces I found that was kind of useful was a review by Ellen Willis from 2001, so when The Sopranos was just starting, and she describes the series as a kind of postmodern middle march, and then she describes, she's like, in the sense that, like, you are watching the character's moral development happen against a parochial milieu, and the fact that, like, it's a great piece love Ellen Willis, but I wanted a piece of Sopranos criticism on the books that did not treat New Jersey as parochial. Like, it's not parochial. There are a lot of, like, specific kind of things about, like, the culture of the state that inform the show and are some of the reasons why the show is so singular and wonderful. And also, David Chase has talked a lot in a lot of different interviews about The Sopranos as kind of his opportunity to really just express what he wanted to do for a long time. And a lot of that came from New Jersey and from his kind of experiences there. Like there's a, I talked about two, actually technically three books in the review. One is um, the Soprano sessions, which is kind of massive tome of Sopranos like reviews and a long interview with David Chase. The other is difficult men, which is by, Brett Martin, I think, but it's about, it's more kind of critical about sort of this, the rise of prestige TV and the role that these like sort of famously like demanding auteurs had. Um, And in that book, you get this anecdote where um, in his like original pitch to HBO, like Chase describes New Jersey as like one of the characters in the story. And it is, it like so is, um, and I just thought it would be helpful and interesting to kind of define exactly what is um, unique to New Jersey about the worldview of the Sopranos and also like what that worldview is and how it kind of made this story, this kind of storytelling possible. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I, um, well, it's funny to think of New Jersey as, you know, the the Midlands is that where Middlemarch takes place in in England? I think it is, but it's, it's not. Yeah. New Jersey is not the Midlands of America. Um, New Jersey is not the Midlands in literally any any sense. Right. It's so I mean, in 
Yeah, so the uh, the unusual things about, I mean, there's a lot of unusual things about New Jersey, as I remember them growing up, and it's, that still take place. So the, the main one is uh, the major, uh, like, economic centers are located outside the state. So, you know, New York City is the locus for most of the activity in, like, northern or at least northeastern New Jersey, and then Philadelphia, somewhat similarly, though not as strongly, in the southern part. And, um, you know, there's that famous quote that Benjamin Franklin said, um, do you know this one? The, um, New Jersey is like a, a beer barrel with a bunghole on both ends. Like, you know, things, things are flowing outwards towards Philadelphia and New York constantly. Um, so there's that when, when I was a kid, Franklin like that, what's that? I can't believe we got roasted by Ben Franklin. Like, oh, that. yeah, I mean, he was, he was in Philadelphia. He was nearby. Um, and then another weird thing, I mean, so this has changed a little bit, but like, um, when I was, when I was a kid, there was no New Jersey, uh, like TV news. They started this cable channel called mm-hmm. News 12, I think when I was in high school. Um, but like, you know, there was no, the local news was the New York City news, um, in Northern New Jersey. And, you know, the channels were the New York City channels. And it's just like, so it was just kind of an afterthought, um, in a lot of ways. And, so then, the, yeah, so then the identity became, like, you know, the garbage pits and the chemical factories that make the, you know, fake smells for for stuff and pollution and, you know, cr- like, crime to, to some extent. But but then the, um, you know, set, having the, like, I, you, know, you can note this in the piece that, like, all the great um, mafia movies or stories are set, are set in New York. And that's the you know, that's like the important place. And then to have, you know, it's like the junior is like the varsity team or something uh, going to New Jersey. And then there's a line in, um, I can't remember where Johnny Sachs says this or, uh, who says it? The, uh, the guy with the, uh, Philly Atardo, uh, I can't remember who says it, but like, uh, one of them says, I always thought they were just a glorified crew talking about the Soprano crime family. Um, and that was like, yeah, like, you know, New, New Jersey doesn't get no respect um, because yeah. the, the big things happen in Brooklyn um, where where Philly Atardo is in charge and, you know, we're, we're, we don't take those New Jersey guys seriously. So th- th- so I think that added to the comic aspect of, of the show um, from the beginning that it was like, hey, it's in New Jersey. Like, isn't that wacky? Um, and then, I don't know if you remember, but the, the marketing initially was very much along those lines of like, this is a wacky story. Like, he has two, like, I remember the post, the like, billboards. It would say like, this man has like one family over here and then it was his, you know, Carmela and the children and another family over here and it was uh, the monsters under, you know, the uh, Christopher and uh, Silvio and so forth. And it was like, which one's he going to choose? Because that, that movie, um, analyze this had come out like a year or two before so it was kind of like this is just like a silly you know, almost like a sitcom thing and i think they you know I, I don't think it was ever intended to be like that but that was the way that they chose to um market it at first it was like this is just like well, a wacky thing okay so well, yeah so what else what else do you think about um any of that or new jersey sopranos one thing i would like to say is that philia tardo even though he's supposed to be in Brooklyn. The scene where he gets killed was in this the um like Morris Plains strip mall where like I would go like with my mom and get groceries and also just go buy like like hor- like the worst tops as a teenager. <laughs> um with like the hoiest shirts I could buy with ten dollars. Um 
And that was where he gets killed. So it's even though like, and, and there's this also kind of thing in the show where all the locations that are meant to be elsewhere are all in New Jersey. Like so much of the show was shot there. The like Bates college when Meadow's daughter goes to visit colleges is actually through university, which is in Morris County. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do think it has, it felt, I mean, you know what mobster Brooklyn is. It has like a very established identity. It has like a very kind of culturally ingrained um, image. Like um, it is not a place that is in question in any way. And New Jersey kind of is in question. Like when The Sopranos came out, there weren't a ton of like shows or films or books even that really kind of like took up like Bush era New Jersey or Clinton era New Jersey as like a place of interest. Um, but you kind of like get the sense that that doesn't particularly matter to Tony Soprano because he's like, this is comfortable. Like I get my yard, I get my, you know, my pool, I get my suburban lifestyle out here in the suburbs. Like there isn't a ton of longing in him, I think to be in the sort of traditional cultural center of the mafia, which would be like, you know, little Italy and and Brooklyn. So yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the Ellen Willis um, quote about The Sopranos as a postmodern middle march, she's like, it's postmodern because the setting is also, like, in flux in the sense that, like, the norms are shifting. And I, I think that's, like, something you get with New Jersey, that, like, the state is, like, has had a lot of shit dumped on it, um, like, figuratively, and probably also literally. There's so <laughs> much in the Meadowlands, like in, in researching the piece, I found out that Berry Creek in the Meadowlands is the body, the creek with the highest concentration of mercury in the entire U.S. Um, but that kind of creates this like sort of instability around what the state's identity even is. And like often that means pointing to other places to define itself pointing to other tropes um, like the cast or the characters in the screen was like love invoking these like mobster tropes, but doing it kind of poorly. Like they're always quoting the Godfather to each other. They're always doing like really terrible, like Michael Corleone impressions. Um, and in New Jersey, like you get that, like if you drive around and look at just like the architecture, look at what places are supposed to represent everything is supposed to look like it's from somewhere else, but it's like not actually from New Jersey. Um, and I just think that's so delightful. And that makes so much more sense for a story that isn't about like people shooting each other, but someone kind of trying to gain a sense of self-knowledge and like ultimately kind of failing. But um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, like, like it is a postmodern show and one of the, things that make it makes it so is that the as you know the characters have seen the godfather and all those other movies they quote them and they misquote them and they are some in some ways uh trying to live up to the like uh, fictional version of the lives they they themselves are living um and you know and there's you know and you know they certain there's all, the whole plot line where christopher is trying to um or i guess he successfully makes uh a uh, horror movie called cleaver <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then the those the really funny scenes where they um see the 
is it Helen Mirren? Who do they mug? They mug someone and steal her like gift basket or her uh, swag bag. I forgot about that. Yeah, I forget who it is. But yeah, he has these weird intersections with like Hollywood and with like screenwriters, and he's like very interested in seeing himself represented. Um, but only in this like very flattering way. Like there's this one episode where he hangs out with John Favreau. Right. Which is a great episode. Um, and John Favreau like kind of wants him to advise on a film and they both want things from each other that are different than what they're saying. Um, and I think they end up like having a falling out in the end, but yeah, I mean, there's a real like hunger to see, oneself represented but like not in certain ways um yeah now i can't be the first person who's thought of this because it just came to me now but um you know there's the meadowlands and there's meadow soprano is it was that a purpose was that on purpose or, or not i actually hadn't thought about that i didn't thought of it until right now but it's because i remember reading somewhere that like uh you know, you had Tony and Carmela, and then they gave their daughter this very hippy dippy kind of flower child name, Meadow, like literally, like right. you know, a field of flowers or whatever. Uh, but it's also, you know, <laughs> the Meadowlands are one of the most famous parts of New Jersey, and they're famously polluted. And they they appear in the opening sequence, I'm sure, when he drives, he's coming out of the tunnel. Um, That's so funny because that actually is like it is kind of um, incomprehensible why the people. Tony and Carmela Soprano would name their daughter Meadow, but if it's like in their head, back of their mind because of the Meadowlands, because they were going there for a football game or something, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I just remembered one of the one of the funniest jokes on the show is when um, it's late in the show and Meadow is, I guess she's thinking about going to law school, and she says something like, uh, "Dad, don't you know that the state can crush the individual?" And Tony pauses and says, "New Jersey." Um, and, and, and like, and just the, and the delivery is so, is so good by the late, great <laughs> Gandolfini. And, um, I, and it's just such a funny idea because New Jersey is like, you know, it's the third littlest state. It's just the joke. It's like a joke state and the idea that it, that New Jersey can crush the individual. But then like, you know, you but know. They can. I mean, like, <laughs> very high property taxes in New Jersey. Oh, for sure, we for all sure. Know. Very empowered governorship um, and a long, long history of corruption. Yeah, so, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, so yeah, you talked um, about Chris Christie a little bit and whether Christie uh, saw himself as a Tony Soprano like figure, or or he would be the like sheriff who would bring who would do the you know bring the law to town and, and like the opposite of a doppelganger because like a doppelganger is like the dark version of a character. Like, I mean, it, it, it's like a I feel like they both kind of are characters in this tradition of these like big blustery, um, like hyper masculine, but also deeply visibly insecure, like people that is like a part of a cultural repertoire that I'm sure both of us know well and have seen from like little league coaches to state senators. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just thinking about like, I mean, Christie's memoir came out around the same time and he talks about Donald Trump and he talks about, um, Trump stylistically, like what, um, how they were both communicating on the debate stage, what kind of characters they were tapping into. 
And like Christy writes that like Trump was like me, but on like jet fuel, like he was like, I was, uh, you know, I was doing well, but like Trump was dominating. And I just felt like, you know, there is this thing in the Sopranos where people, um, take tropes and like cultural, um, like cultural ideals and harness them to their own uses, sometimes a bit naively. Like there's something that almost feels a bit naive about Tony Soprano. You're like, you're not entirely sure that he knew exactly what he was getting into when he became the mob boss, but he did still like tap into this thing, this, this like um, violent, like, you know, domineering role that he played. And then eventually by the end, he's just like really not in good shape and might die in the final scene. And I was just thinking about like that, that like that cultural role. And then like Christie is, is playing a version of it. Like, and I think Donald Trump is also playing not, not the New Jersey version maybe the, the Queens version, but they're all kind of, I don't know, like riffing on the same song and it's like, I don't know. It, it makes me sad. And I guess there's also nothing inherent in like that character that keeps it from being harmful. Like I think Christy is, is like obviously less harmful than Donald Trump in terms of what they've actually done in their political careers. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like, it's hard to kind of draw it together neatly, but like there is this kind of like cultural repertoire that is like funny and fun and makes like good TV and good shows. And it's awesome. And it's like, New Jersey and it's where we're from. But then sometimes you see some of those tropes used out in the world to do horrible things. And you're like, Oh no, like this does have consequences. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean like Tony, you know, was obviously an anti anti-hero and, um, you felt sympathy for him, um, because he was uh, funny and clever and was able to like outwit people. And you saw, you know, you saw everything he, went through in life, but also did, you know, horrible things and killed people and including, uh, yeah. For like not good reasons. Yeah. I mean, like, he, like in the last season when he killed, he kills Christopher essentially to get him, you know, because he's proving too tr- troublesome. Um, but, and then, uh, you know, you could see Christie and Trump as kind of, yeah, versions of that figure of the, you know, the, the asshole, but he's on our side kind of thing. Um, and I, I left New Jersey right around the, t- the time that Chris Christie rose to power, but my, uh, mother was a, uh, public school librarian and he made, uh, he made teachers, uh, one of his big enemies. And yeah, my dad's a teacher and it was, all, I, I was in high school then actually. And I remember like, you know, Christie was elected and then the next school year, a bunch of people lost their jobs and like the school lost funding and it was, Terrible. Yeah, and and kind of the um you know the bully's tactic of like finding a victim and um you know just going going after them is something Christy and Trump share. I would say, and you know in in, in um in New Jersey, uh, Christy effectively 
demonized teachers and the, you know, the, these videos would go viral of him at like town halls or something like, you know, belittling a, you know, everyday constituent who tried to challenge him. And so, yeah, he was really like, you know, took pride in his asshole persona. I think, I wonder if, um, you know, it, I mean, the, the, the co- one commonality between Christie and Tony is their physical commonality of being like kind of fat. And then Trump was also kind of fat, but isn't like a fat guy in his presentation the way that Christie is an obviously fat guy and the, and yeah. the late Gandolfini was as well. But that kind of like, you know, yeah, he'll, he'll just like bluster over you and he'll like, just, yeah, he's just like a bowling pin, you know, like bowling ball, just like knocking over the pins or something. Um, is, is yeah, that kind of yeah. persona? The thing I always think about with Christie is like after the like infamous like beach incident where he like shut down the beaches over the the budget um, negotiations and then like went on the beach with his family like which I actually like think is more hilarious than um, despicable even though I think it's despicable but I think it's so funny um, he said something like like well if you don't like it or like he's like if you want to do this then you become governor and and it just like clicked that like this is his mentality about like public holding public office that you are you're gonna do what like you you're gonna do whatever you want and that's what it means to hold power you get to do whatever you want if someone says the beach is closed you get to go on the beach because you have power to say no i get to go on the beach and i feel like obviously tony operates that way like no one can really tell him no um and I mean, Donald Trump as well. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why, like, you know, there can only be one mob boss. Um, and one of, the, one of the tensions in The Sopranos in the early scenes is this is like, who's really the boss, um, Uncle June or Tony? And then when Christie joined forces with Trump, it was like, you have these two, like, alpha males or wannabe alpha males. Um, you know, can they both live under one roof? And then it seemed like, like Christy, you know, Christie couldn't keep his mouth shut. I, I can't remember exa- exactly why they kicked him out, but it was something along the lines of like it's dumping stuff. Because oh, right. when, yeah, so was it just that, or was it some other? I mean, I think it was probably a comp, but I, Jared Kushner's had it out for Christie for right. forever. Right, since Christie sent Jared Kushner's father to jail for blackmailing his own brother by setting him up with a sex worker and filming it. So unfair. So unfair that someone would go to jail for taking an action like that, a benign brotherly action. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's I mean, what... That was in New Jersey. Like, New Jersey crimes have this, like, Baroque flair to them where you feel like even when someone is gets caught and they feel bad, you're like, you must have thought about how this was going to play as a story in the media before you did it. I mean, there's this fantastic example from The Sopranos where um, there was a, a county executive named James Treffinger who was Italian, and he was very critical of the show's depiction of Italian-Americans. So that, they was were trying Essex, to, that was Essex County, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Essex County, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they were trying to shoot um, the Pine Barrens episode in Essex County, and he like came up with this bullshit reason why they couldn't, I think, related to like deer hunting or something. So they had to scramble and move it somewhere else. And then it later came out that he was, like, engaged in this, like, corruption scheme involving, like, I don't know, campaign donations and I think, like, a no-show job or, like, some some kind of, like, typical New Jersey malfeasance at the same time as he was, like, criticizing the Sopranos for depicting Italian-Americans as, like, corrupt and criminal-minded while he was doing crimes <laughs> as an Italian-American. And you're like... 
even though it's hypocritical, it's something more than hypocritical. Like it's this highly developed sense of irony that I like, just really want to read into stuff like that. Um, yeah, there are so many. Yeah, I, the, a broke flare is, is a perfect phrase for the kind of weird, um, you know, like grotesque <laughs> angles on some of these dirty scandals. I mean, there's the the thing that got uh, Jim McGreevy uh, kicked out of office, which was that he was having a uh, affair with another man who was his homeland security advisor or something. So, it, but it was like a financial scandal as well because he was paying him off the books, something like that. And he gave him a no show job, I think. Yeah, right. Bridgegate. Bridgegate is so much more like the idea behind Bridgegate is so much more complicated than it needs to be to achieve his goal. Which is rack up endorsements for Chris Christie in the, in his reelection campaign. And you just get the sense that people have this like zeal to do complicated and kind of operatic crimes with their power and with their government posts. Right. Um, yeah. That is like so present in the show. And I think it's also another way that it's postmodern that you're already thinking about like, the reception or like the kind of like narrative around something while you're doing it. I mean, there's no way to confirm that. I just like, can't imagine you're not thinking of yourself. You're not, I, I can't imagine that James Trevor didn't at any point realize that it was funny. <laughs> when- <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh man. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> Uh, there, I have another uh, another New Jersey scan- local New Jersey p- political scandal I'll share with you off air. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there anything else you want to hit on Sopranos before we before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I guess it's just the best show ever, and I think it's really nice when you know people get to do the show they wanted to do. I mean, David Chase was making like the Rockford files and like a bunch of like kind of eighties, like crime shows before. And he had this like big, you know, like epic of New Jersey crimes in him the whole time. And then he got to do it. And I think that's so cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't like it. I don't know if I would put it like one or in first place or second place in the canon of, you know, the ranking of all-time best, like, TV dramas, uh, The Wire would be the one I would say it was, it was competing yeah. with. But um, it's certainly, like, no, I don't know if anyone has, no one has successfully, at least, tried something similar. Um, maybe Breaking Bad a little bit, but I, I don't think it was as, not as good. Um, and, yeah, you know, certainly, you know, like Game of Thrones is more ambitious in terms of, like, thousands of people working on the set and all these computer graphics and everything, but, like, in terms of like creating these characters that could be in a novel, but are, are, you know, vividly portrayed by, by actors and the thematic, uh, deepness of it. I don't think it's been surpassed in in 20 years since it's, uh, since it's come on the air. I mean, the wire is really, really good, but it's basically realism. There's a couple slightly fantastical elements to it, but, um, yeah, the, the Sopranos was like operating on a level. I think that hasn't, hasn't really been matched. No. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, a real achievement. Yeah. I guess the other thing I would like to shout out is the fact that um, Green New Jersey always pointing at other places to define itself. Um, the state has so many historical theme parks for places 
like for parts of history that did not happen anywhere near New Jersey, <laughs> um, including medieval times, but notably um, Wild West City, a fake Wild West town where someone got shot. Like one guy who was being like, they were like, they're like cowboy reenactors. And then at the end of like a day, they do this like fake shootout where they like walk 10 paces, turn around, like shoot the gun. And they all have all of the actors at this park full of children. I went there in fourth grade, have blanks firing guns. And this guy loaded his gun with bullets instead of with blanks. Um, and he shot the guy in front of all these kids. Um, yeah, which is like something you could picture happening on the Sopranos. <laughs> like you could just see that happening where it's like this, like jabroni. I think they found that he didn't do it on purpose. Um, and that it was a mistake and he like got his guns mixed up, but you should not have a situation where cowboy reenactors at a theme park for children can get their guns mixed up. Yeah, you. I think you mentioned that in the article. I somehow I never been to or even heard of that place. Um, is it? Is it? Where exactly is it in New Jersey? I honestly don't remember. It's like a definitely not. It's like probably in Central Jersey somewhere where they can like get this like large space. Platform. Yeah. Yeah, and when I went, when I was in eighth grade or not in eighth grade in in, uh, in fourth grade, and I was probably like eight. Um, it rained, so they, we stopped going outside because it was too wet. And then they had this demonstration of like whip skills inside a small room with a bunch of kids. And this man was doing like whip skills with his like son who was holding out like pieces of paper and like the guy like whipped right through them. And he whipped his son by accident. He like really hurt his son. This is the kind of thing that happens in New Jersey all the time. <laughs> okay, yeah. So there's kind of a like, yeah. It's it's like you know, first first history repeats itself. First is strategy, then it's farce. So like the far, the farce happens in New Jersey. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like the um, organ that processes the farces of history for the entire like nation. Just weird shit happens. Weird, weird shit. Right. Oh, one the one last uh, Sopranos thing I wanted to mention. This is this is you know people have noted this for a long time. Is that um, uh, Trump is mentioned in the show very late on when uh, uh, AJ has a crisis of conscience late in the show about like capitalism and you know all, all the ways the Earth is being despoiled. But then somehow he shakes out of it very quickly and decides what he wants to do is learn how to fly a helicopter and fly a helicopter for <laughs> Donald Trump. And um, yeah, yeah. It's really funny, like the throwaway references. So that, yeah, so just what, you know, whenever 2007 or whatever, whenever that was, it was like, that was a punchline to that, that like the stupid boy's uh, life goal was to fly Donald Trump's helicopter. And, um, yeah. and here we are today. Um, Donald Trump is also a, a very postmodern figure in that the idea that he was not an idiot and not like a, like a reckless, psychopathic playboy was invented by Mark Burnett to create The Apprentice. I agree completely. So, and in fact, I've done a previous episode of, of the show on that very topic. Is Donald oh, Trump a, a postmodern figure? Um, yeah, I mean, just look at the, the, the buildings that he built. Like, there's postmodernism right there and w- without even, yeah. you know, Atlantic City. Um, okay, so we've, we've got it for a while. Why don't we, why don't we close things out there? So, Aaron, Aaron, where can people find your work if they want to follow it? Um, so I post everything I write on Twitter and my handle is at Web Schwartz, like Aaron Schwartz on the web. 
um, and also on my website, but I contribute pretty frequently to the nation. So you can see it there. Do you want to see my cat? He's right over there. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Come here, Puffin. He's actually a small bear. Oh, that's a big cat. He's so big. Wow. Hello, Hello. <laughs> uh, This is one of the few episodes where my cat, one of my cats did not make a cameo appearance there off sleeping somewhere. Um, so thank you. Um, thank you uh, for coming on, Aaron. Uh, thank you for uh, giving your cat a cameo appearance. Uh, thank you to all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really fun. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.